Welcome to Pennies and Popcorn, the show about real money lessons from the world of TV and movies. With your hosts, Carla Cash and Robert Davidson, a couple of personal finance geeks and movie lovers. Welcome to today's episode of Pennies and Popcorn, guys. This is going to be a little bit of a different episode today. We are looking at the documentary Bowling for Columbine, which came out in 2002, the year that I graduated from high school, by the way, makes me feel really old. Um, It is about the 1999 school shooting that happened here in Colorado at Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado. And it talks about gun violence. And and we're just a couple weeks at the most out from the recent school shooting that happened in Uvalde, Texas, where 19 students were killed and two teachers were killed. And it just seemed like a good time to maybe talk a little bit about gun violence. And I know the media is already shining a big light on it, but we thought we'd take our teensy-weensy little platform here and talk about it a bit. We're not going to get super political. We're mostly just going to stick to facts and statistics and not get too deeply into our personal views. But I think it's something that's really worth talking about. And it's, you know, we don't have too many of these huge school shootings in America, a lot more than we wish we did. But every time we have one, I think it's a good chance to kind of take a step back and really think about where we are with guns in this society and how it affects the economy. You know, this is still pennies and popcorn. We're still talking about money stuff. And there's a lot of money that goes into the gun topic in America. So we're going to focus on all kinds of statistics about guns and gun violence and also how it affects the American economy. But we shouldn't pretend that there's not some politics in this topic. Um, I I think the quality of our discourse when we have disagreements today, especially in the United States, is not particularly good. Most people aren't particularly open to hearing thoughts from the other side. What's interesting about Bowling for Columbine, Michael Moore, the director and the main character, if you will, he's a member of the NRA uh, and he supports some substantial gun reforms. He's also pretty far left on the political spectrum. And so it's pretty difficult to talk about this movie without talking about his the lens in which he, he filmed it, right? his political perspective. I'm hopeful that our audience is mature enough to listen to things that they may not love. We're certainly going to try to provide as unbiased a perspective as we can. As Carla said, a lot of data to talk about, a lot of challenges in our society as it comes to guns. And I know people are passionate on both sides of this topic, so hopefully... Um, you're ready to, to hear that sort of thing. And if not, we'll look forward to catching you next week. Yeah. So with that in mind, I guess let's just talk briefly. That we, Normally we do a plot summary at the beginning of the show. Um, it's not really appropriate for a documentary like this, but Bowling for Columbine is essentially the story of what happened at the Columbine High School and the aftermath of it. And then... Mostly it's Michael Moore trying, trying, but not actually answering the question of why do we have so much more gun violence here in America than a lot of other countries? We're going to get into some of those statistics about what it looks like in America versus in other developed countries, primarily in Europe, where it is dramatically lower. Um, And he kind of offers a lot of different options, potential reasons for why 
the gun violence is substantially greater here. Um, so we're going to walk through a few of those today and kind of pick them apart and look at some of the data behind them. Um, but that's essentially the movie in a nutshell. It did win an Academy Award for Best Documentary. Um, I believe when Michael Moore accepted his award, he was in the middle of making his follow-up documentary, Fahrenheit 9-11, said some uh, political things on stage and got kind of booed off the stage. It was a little bit awkward for him there. Um, interestingly, did you know Michael Moore was elected to school board when he was 18? When he was a senior in high school, right before he graduated, he was elected to his his city's school board? Yeah, I did. His activism roots go pretty deep. He started at a very young age. So he tells the story of this in his audiobook, Here Comes Trouble, which we listened to on a recent road trip because we had just watched Bowling for Columbine again for this episode and we're kind of interested more about his background. And yeah, he had a school teacher um, spank him publicly for not having his shirt tucked in and he was just furious about it and decided that's it. I'm not going to live with this anymore. So he literally ran to be on the school board and won at 18 years old and was a big reason behind getting that teacher fired. I think it shows that he has been deeply motivated to like change the system from a very early age. There's a lot of things about Michael Moore that are controversial and not awesome, but I think that piece of his personality is really great and we would be better served if a lot more Americans went out and you know, really chased their political beliefs and tried to make change um, through the system. So, yeah, the in your face moment that he has with Charlton Heston or Dick Clark in the movie Bowling for Columbine, where he kind of catches them in difficult positions and tries to pin them down on their feelings about some pretty sensitive subjects. That's not the first time that he's taken that strategy for getting in front of people. He's definitely been an activist trying to create change since he was a little kid, it seems like. Also, he just kind of seems like Forrest Gump. He's had all these <laughs> crazy run-ins with like famous people and been there for kind of important moments in history. And yeah, it's it's an interesting uh, listen or read if you want to check out his book, Here Comes Trouble. But getting back to Bowling for Columbine, I think one thing we should note is this is about a school shooting, right? So I think it would be an interesting start to talk about how many school shootings we've had since Columbine happened in 1999. So according to the statistics that I saw, in 2022 alone, so far, we've already had 24. In 2021, last year, it was the highest number ever at 42. And since 1999, overall, there have been 185 people killed in school shootings and 369 wounded in school shootings. So as we're going to talk about you know, even one is too many, right? This is, this is, these numbers are far too high and it's devastating. But in the grand scheme of things, I do think it's healthy for people to have a perspective that, you know, this isn't thousands of people that it's happening to every single day. By and large, I think kids going to school should not feel terrified that this is going to happen to them on any given day. Statistically, it is very unlikely to happen to any one individual person. And we're going to talk about fear a lot in this episode. And I do think it's important for people to keep, you know, a good perspective on when you're going about your day-to-day -day life, trying not to have fear at the absolute forefront of everything, because statistically, you are a lot safer here than in some other places. And, you know, just on any given day, it's unlikely to happen to you. 
that doesn't mean we don't all think about it. And it doesn't mean that it isn't just devastating and terrible. We shouldn't take measures to cut back on these as best we possibly can. But it does mean that we shouldn't let fear rule our lives. Agreed. And we shouldn't let it rule the mood of this show, right? I think we're kind of down. This is a tough topic. Let's lighten up. Let's have some fun. And I think this first <laughs> clip from the movie is kind of amusing and it might get us, get us off on the right tone. All right, let's listen to our first clip. This is Michael Moore going to a local bank in Michigan, the state that he's from, and wanting to get a little bit of a bonus for this account that he wants to open. You do a CD no, and we'll hand happen. you a gun. We have a whole brochure here that you can look at. Mm -hmm. okay. Once right. we do the background check and everything, right, it's right. yours to go. Okay. Um, all right, well, that um, that's okay. the account I'd like oh, to open. We have a vault, which at all times we keep at least 500 firearms. 500 of these you have in your vault? In our vault. Wow. Well, here's my first question. Do you think it's a little dangerous handing out guns in a bank? Yeah, so this, I mean, this is a documentary. This was a real thing that they were running this promotion. Open up a CD, a certificate of deposit account with this particular bank and get a gun. Super fun. Yay. So I did read that this is a little bit of a license by the director here in the way that he made the film. They didn't store them at that particular branch. They had some central branch that had a vault that had some guns stored in it hundreds of miles away from where they were located. So it's not like you went in, opened an account, and then had a gun that you could go rob the place with. The way they typically distributed them was to uh, send them to a local retailer, a licensed dealer that you would pick up the gun from. Oh, but, that is much better. Yeah. I that mean, it's, it's totally not, it's not like, hey, have a gun. Please don't point it at me. Yeah, that is definitely how it's portrayed in the documentary, which does seem pretty ridiculous. Yeah. Um, I, so I watched this movie the summer after my freshman year of college. And yeah, I thought that was just outrageous, but looking it up now on the internet. Yeah, a little bit of a editorial a bit license there. Okay, okay. So first, because this is pennies and popcorn, we have to give you financial advice whenever it comes up. So he's opening a certificate of deposit. Those are generally not great investment vehicles. So just a quick Google search of what the average CD rate is today. You're looking at maybe like 0 0.2, 0.3% return. For what term? About a year. That's that would be like roughly what those percentages would tie to. Okay, so you get 0.2% interest for a year-long CD, but you might get a gun with it. But you're going to get a gun. Woohoo. Okay. So I think that brings up another really good point. This is obviously kind of a weird and sort of egregious example of getting a gun uh, to open up a CD is like an incentive. But it's not unusual at all for all kinds of companies to run promotions like buy this refrigerator and we'll throw in a cheap little microwave that would cost you 50 bucks or buy the mattress and we'll give you two free pillows, right? This kind of thing is all over the place as a little bonus to get people to do things. I think banks run promotions like this, right? Sign up with us and we'll give you like a little $60 Amazon Fire tablet, something like that. Uh, we get stuff in the mail all the time from uh, Chase or other banks that we've worked with in the past saying, hey, please transfer a bunch of money into our you know investment brokerage system. We'll give you $2,000 if you go put a quarter of a million dollars into our brokerage account. They're going to eat it up in fees and it's probably not the way to make a business decision about what you're going to do with your money. Um, 
yeah, I don't know that I would go choose to invest in a CD just for a free gun or any kind of bonus like that. I think CDs have their place. If you're trying to grow your money in today's market, CDs don't do a lot. If this were 30 years ago, eh, it might've been a decent vehicle. If it were 50 years ago, it was probably all right. I think what the CDs offer is a guaranteed return, mm-hmm. which is nice. If your guaranteed return is 0.2%, what's the point? Um, but if your guaranteed return were decent and you didn't want to be subject to the volatility of anything, you could have it as a short-term investment and ensure you're going to get something back, or you could have it as a long-term investment if the rates are solid. And who knows? It may work out in your favor relative to the market. On average, it should be worse, right? The banks can't offer you a CD that's going to do better than the market would. That that doesn't really make sense. Right. So, yeah, it's a viable option, but probably not something people should be going after all that often today. Yeah, I generally think of CDs as like a safe place to park money that you know you're going to need in the pretty near term. So, like, if you know you're going to be buying a house soon, but you don't want that money just sitting in a checking account that you plan on using for a down payment, for example a CD might be a viable place to park it for a few months. Yeah, it should be better than a savings account. Yeah, you would hope. Um, but they're generally not great for like long-term, you know, I really want to get some good growth out of this money kind of investing. So just generally be careful. And I think the more important takeaway is don't ever get sucked into these silly promotions where you're buying like some big expensive thing or making some important investment decision just because of some dinky little bonus that gets thrown in on top of it. Like a mattress can be a very expensive investment that you're going to live with for, you know, 10 plus years. Don't do it for the freaking pillows, right? <laughs> That's a very silly thing to do. So be wary of these little promotions that people throw at you. Okay. So in the clip, the banker says to Michael Moore that he has to get a background check. We're going to talk about guns. We're going to talk about the data around guns here. And for people who have never purchased a firearm, I'm going to guess they have no idea what the background check laws are. So it is federally required in all 50 states that licensed arms dealers run a background check on a person purchasing a gun. What that means is that there's a file kept on everybody by the FBI or not, if you've never been in the system. And what they're going to do is a quick, typically takes like 30 seconds check to just run your name, social security number through that system and see if they get any hits. What they're looking for is certain past criminal convictions, uh, mental illness, if you've been involuntarily committed somewhere, that kind of thing. Some kinds of, um, addiction backgrounds can can disqualify you from being able to purchase a gun yeah domestic abuse uh, if you have a restraining or restraining order against you if you've had a dishonorable discharge from the military mm-hmm. yeah so that's not an exhaustive list but i think it's it's pretty close there's just a couple of things we're leaving out and what's important to know is that these are required by licensed arms dealers like the bank says they are in that last clip right Um, It does not apply to -to person-to-person sales. And the big important exception to this that everybody talks about is gun shows because you can show up at a gun show with a ton of firearms as just like an individual person who's not licensed and sell as many guns as you want and not run any background checks at all. 
So this is the gun show loophole that you may have heard people talk about. And it basically just says no background checks required as long as you're not licensed to sell. You don't have to run background checks. Yeah. So if you're like a genuine gun business, every gun you sell is to be sold to someone who's passed a background check. That's the, that's the way the law is structured. And I suspect that's the way it goes when you go into gun shops. So yeah. it's, you know, if you didn't know that there are some protections in place, it's not a universe. It's not the universal background check that you hear people talk about. As Carla said, there are exceptions, but it's pretty comprehensive. Yeah. So 21 states have closed that loophole and said, anybody who's selling a gun, period, you got to run these background checks. And it is a pretty, like, I mean, as we said, there's there's a fairly short list of things that will disqualify you. No one's like, you know, asking you a list of questions about what you plan to do with the weapon, no list of questions to analyze your mental health. It's just straight up like run your name through the system and that's the process. So it obviously doesn't catch a lot of folks like the guy in Uvalde, Texas, I think purchased a gun pretty shortly before the shooting. It's an 18-year-old kid, no record that anybody knew of. Nobody you know, tried to evaluate this kid and see if he was a potential threat. So um, definitely not a perfect system, but it is, it is better than nothing. It's something. Yeah. So as the movie progresses, Michael Moore interviews a variety of different people and our next clip, uh, let me apologize up front. The audio quality is terrible. I don't know how they couldn't get better audio than this in the movie, but it's the reality. We even cleaned it up some to make it better than, than it was in the movie. But Michael Moore interviews Matt Stone, the co-creator of South Park. and has some. Uh, Matt Stone grew up in Littleton, Colorado, on the outskirts of where Columbine High School is located. Interestingly, I read this later that... Uh, Michael Moore kind of made it seem like the South Park guys created some of the animation in the movie, the way that he sort of paired stuff together. He interviewed Matt Stone and then followed up with some animation that his team made on his own, not done by the South Park team. And that really made them, that made them very angry. And so I think in their movie, their 2004 South Park movie, Team America, I think they hit Michael Moore back pretty hard. Oh, so interesting. Anyway, let's play the clip. Let's hear what uh, Matt Stone had to say. You know, you believe in high school and, the, you know, and a lot of it's kids, but the teachers and counselors and principals don't help things. They scare you into doing, into conforming and doing good in school by saying, if you're a loser now, you're going to be a loser forever. They just, just beat it in your head as early as sixth grade. Right. Don't fuck up because if you do, you're going to die for a moment and you don't want to do that. And you're like, well, fuck, you know, whatever I am now, I'm that forever. And and of course, it's completely opposite. All right, dwarfs in high school go on to do great things, and all the really cool guys are all like living back in little kids and insurance agents. It's almost person to person. It's, it's completely that way. So if you couldn't understand him there, he's saying that all the dorks in high school grow up to do something cool, and all the cool kids in high school uh, are still living in Littleton working as insurance agents. That's what he said there. So yeah. sorry to all the insurance agents out there. We didn't mean to to uh, throw a slight at you, but that's that's what the guy is saying. Yeah, and I, I think we could talk about whether or not he's right about the way the teachers portray things or the way that you feel. If, you, if you're a screw-up when you're in junior high, does that translate to being a screw-up for life? I do think it's kind of funny that his definition of the people who are like losers in high school um, always go on to do great things. The people who are really successful in high school tend to struggle. 
And if we're thinking that, you know, being an above average member of your high school football team equates to being super successful in high school, we're probably looking at things wrong, right? I mean, these programs, whether it's football or quiz bowl or being part of the environmental club or anything like that, it it's a tool to help you learn useful life skills and hopefully have some fun, right? I think all these extracurricular activities that people are part of and that they may thrive in, and you may thrive in a wide variety of them and stand out relative to your peers, just doing that and being kind of terrible at everything else, you know, the whole point of school is to get a well-rounded education. And if you're just, you know, starting tight end for the football team, hopefully people don't really think that's what high school success is. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, I think, first of all, you went to a magnet high school where it was very academically focused and your definition of success in high school was very tied to academics. Well, it is school. (laughs) It is school. It is school. It is also a large gathering of people who are the same age. And when you get, especially at that age, there is a lot of vying for social status. People want to be seen. They want to be appreciated. They want to be thought well of. None of that totally goes away as adults, but I do think that the volume gets turned down on how desperate we are for that approval when you're at that age, the need to be liked and noticed and um, popular, you know, if you want to use that term, is is much higher than it is when you get into adulthood. So I think we can summarize his statement is that who you are, even as early as middle school, is who you will be when you're an adult, or at least that's the, the way that it is portrayed to young people. Is he right? I mean, there are certainly things in school that build upon one another. And I, I think teachers have a responsibility to make sure you know how to read and can do basic algebra because everything after that depends on your mastery of those initial concepts. But is he right? Do you feel like teachers are pushing things that way? And is it actually an accurate way to analyze people's lives on, on average? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, he's talking about this in the context of you know, what factors contributed to the two shooters at Columbine becoming the two shooters at Columbine instead of just two ordinary kids who graduated and went on to do whatever in life. So there's that aspect to it. But I think also, you know, from a non-shooter, like gun-related perspective, we can look at this and analyze it too. So for me, growing up, I kind of felt like he was, he was right And there is a specific pathway that one can follow in life that will pretty much guarantee to lead you to success. You work really hard and you're, you know, naturally gifted at school and you put in those man hours and join the right clubs and get into a good college and then maybe graduate school beyond that. And there are pathways, for me it was law school, that are very likely to lead you to very well-paying jobs. So it, I mean, that system kind of worked for me. I didn't feel too much like a square peg in a round hole. Like it worked pretty well for me and I didn't have to strangle who I naturally was too terribly much. When I got to law school, I think I started to have to do that a little bit more. And then in in practice, um, working as an attorney, I felt like I had to do that even a little bit more, but 
it's, um, it still worked for me. Like I followed that very, you know, deeply carved out path that people have done so many times before me and it does work, but that's not to say it was fun. That's not to say it was the only way for sure. And I do think, um, you know, this particular guy, Matt Stone, who went on to be the co-creator of South Park. I mean, he, he has gotten very, very lucky in life. He's obviously got a lot of skill. The South Park show is fantastic and creative and hilarious. And maybe, you know, with that skill set, you succeed 100% of the time. But I do know there are also a lot of other super creative and funny people out there on planet Earth who just, for whatever reason, the chips didn't fall their way. And they didn't become Matt Stone, the co-creator of South Park. I'm sure he seemed like he was kind of a screw-up when he was in high school, right? He was probably all about the art side of things and not super into the traditional academic stuff. Yeah. So I think it is definitely easy to follow the well-trodden path. It's much harder to break out and do something on your own. But by and large, that tends to lead towards people who are more satisfied in their careers. So, you know, your teachers aren't lying to you when they say you should work really hard in school, starting at a super young age, it'll definitely lead to success because it can. But yeah, I think teachers are right that it definitely has the ability to pay off and that it's really, really difficult to overcome the hurdles that you put in front of yourself by not doing the best you can and not applying yourself fully when learning the basics, when going through middle school and high school. I definitely think it's true. So taking it back to like from the school shooter perspective, you know, he's obviously talking about that this environment is what fostered these two young boys to pick up their assault rifles and make bombs and just full on attack their school. What do you think we can do as a society to prevent that kind of school environment from being so unwelcoming to kids like those two shooters oh we we need more online community oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll do it. Uh, i think just looking at so this movie came out 20 years ago we had a school shooting a few weeks ago right these things haven't changed substantially over those last couple of decades but i will say the societal reflections on who people are and the way that people feel about themselves has probably not gotten any better with the easy ability for online bullying and feeling left out more and more because there's more room for connection over the internet. What can we do? Man, I don't, I really don't have a good idea. I, I mean, I, I think society with each passing generation gets more accepting of people who are a little bit different. I don't know that we're ever going to, I mean, kids are terrible, right? Kids can be pretty ruthless to people who are slightly different. And it only, there is a gradual evolution of acceptance of a kind of difference. Right? I think we were talking earlier about uh, how infrequent it was when we were in high school and college for people to be openly gay, right? Um, at my high school, there were not that many openly gay students. I think if we look at that class now, many of them have, have come out but it's because they would have been somewhat isolated and it would have been really difficult both at home and especially at school with their peer group to, to be a little bit different. I don't know. I mean, I think gradual evolution of acceptance of all sorts of different things is the pathway to treating each other with respect and making sure that people don't feel a, a place of isolation. 
but it doesn't change overnight. And I, I don't think we're ever going to get rid of it. Yeah. Well, so much of that teen angst is just centered around the deep insecurity that you feel at that age. And I cannot imagine that ever going away completely, but I do think it is getting better and better. And, you know, we're seeing more representation of all different kinds of personalities and sexual orientations and different races on television, which does go a long way, right? It really matters what you see, especially at a young age, being reflected back to you as like, this is what society is. So I think that's important. It goes a long way. And I generally have the impression that people are becoming more accepting as time goes on. But as you said, one, any kind of bullying and like, I want to feel better than you, so I'm going to pick on whatever it is that makes you different. We're never going to completely eradicate that, at least not in our lifetimes, I don't think, maybe somewhere down the road. So I think the consequences of, of the way that people feel are, are, are tragic, right? It leads to these sort of crazy shooting uh, activities, but also leads to suicides. And if we're going to talk about guns, I think we probably owe it to ourselves to talk a little bit about some of the statistics around suicides and, and guns in particular. So um, last year there were, I'm sorry, in 2020, which is the last year that we have like complete statistics for, there were 45,222 deaths by gun violence in the United States. And a full 54% of that, over half, is by suicide. So it is a dangerous thing to have a gun in your home. And I think, you know, so many gun owners think that, well, I'm fine. I'm happy. It'll never happen to me. But things change and people have dark turns and dark moments in their life. And it is not an impossible thing. So I just am putting it out there as a number that exists and something that I think is good for gun owners to be aware of, that they're checking in on their mental health and not succumbing to that kind of thing. I think one thing that a lot of people will surprise a lot of people is how guns affect suicide rates, right? Suicide is often uh, a function of opportunity and likelihood of success. There are, have been studies after studies that have shown that when conditions change and people have a, a foolproof method of suicide at their disposal, like a gun, uh, it works. When they have a less successful method in place, Often the suicide attempts are not attempts are not repeated. So, um, yeah, wasn't there a study in the United Kingdom when they got rid of their, their kitchen gas or whatever fuel they used to, to in ovens, the Sylvia Plath type things? Exactly. Yeah. So Sylvia Plath famously ended her life by sticking her head in the oven, which, at least to me, has always sounded like a very strange thing because we don't have these kinds of ovens anymore. But it's not like the heat killed her. There was a form of gas that they would use in more old-fashioned ovens where this poisonous gas was just being pumped directly into the oven. So she basically breathed poisonous gas, which was a very popular form of suicide for a really long time. And then they finally realized, hmm, that sounds dangerous. And they changed ovens and didn't do that anymore. And the suicide rate plummeted because it was just this incredibly easy thing to do to stick your head in the oven and breathe this poisonous gas. Incredibly effective. And removing that option helped save a lot of lives. Yeah. Guns and suicide are tough. And I think if we had less accessible guns to people who are in that fragile mental state, we'd be able to save a lot of lives. Yeah. 
Well, let's jump into our next clip, which is kind of fun. Uh, the voice you'll hear, you probably won't recognize. Normally, uh, this person is singing. It's slash screaming. Yeah, slash screaming. <laughs> uh, it's Marilyn Manson. Um, we're not exactly pumping him up as a role model, but he was a big part of the movie. Yeah, let's take a listen. This is Michael Moore interviewing him. You're watching television. You're watching the news. You're being pumped full of fear. There's floods. There's AIDS. There's murder. Cut to commercial. Buy the Acura. Buy the Colgate. If you have bad breath, they're not going to talk to you. If you got pimples, the girl's not going to fuck you. And it's just this, it's a campaign of fear and consumption. And that's what I think that it's all based on, is the whole idea that keep everyone afraid and they'll consume. So this takes me back, right? Like, don't you remember around Columbine, there was all this talk about people are listening to this kind of crazy music and it's what's leading them to make these sorts of, you know, crazy rash decisions. I think Eminem referenced it in one of his songs. Uh, when a dude's getting bullied and shoots up his school, they blame it on Marilyn, something like that. Uh, anyway, a huge pop culture thing in the news and the, the zeitgeist at the time. And we fast forward 20 years, these kinds of things haven't really changed in frequency or they certainly haven't reduced in frequency. You mean shootings? Yes, the shootings. But the Marilyn Manson listening has certainly gone down, right? Yeah, I remember so many kids in my high school were really obsessed with him. He was having a moment when we were in high school right around the time that this documentary came out. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's definitely fallen off the radar. His uh, former partner, Evan Rachel Wood, has come out and accused him of some pretty terrible abuse. So as you said, we certainly don't want to like lift him up. I kind of hate that we're giving him any airtime at all. But I, I do agree with what he's saying here. Even a broken clock is right twice a day, right? And uh, I think he's, he's making some good points here. So it's worth talking about. Well, I, the reason why Michael Moore had him in the movie is that he went through a bunch of the things that we hear about today when it comes to gun violence, that there are violent video games that kids play and they're desensitized, or they listen to this terrible music, or they watch movies that glorify violence, or religion has been taken out of schools and even the homes, and that there's less uh, faith involved in the community today. And I think what Michael Moore did fairly effectively in this movie, and, and we see it even today, I, I think um, Trevor Noah recently did something on this where all of these things have been completely debunked. Go look at other countries around the world who have substantially lower numbers of gun violence, but have the exact same sort of cultural setup. You know, American culture is really popular around the world. We are great exporters of our culture. Yeah, if we, except for the gun violence part, <laughs> right? If we make movies that are shoot 'em up movies and people play violent video games and, you know, the, the shock rock is popular in many parts of the world but it hasn't translated to the same level of violence. So that's why Marilyn Manson was in the movie. He was just one more example of how we kind of pointed at that as an idea for, for why this stuff is happening, but it's probably not a very good explanation. Yeah, I very much agree. I don't see, I mean, it's clear that there is not one and only one factor that we can point to as to why we have more gun violence there's definitely a correlation between the number of guns we have and the higher rates of gun violence. We're going to talk about that after our next clip, but I don't think we can blame it entirely on that. It's definitely part of the culture here. Part of the reason we haven't gotten rid of the guns goes back to culture too, right? So I do think we have to examine the culture and a lot of different factors there as well, but it does seem pretty clear that it's not 
you know, Marilyn Manson or the video games because those exist everywhere. Well, what do you think about Marilyn Manson's opinion about fear and uh, consumption? You keep everybody scared and, and they'll consume. I think that's 100% correct. Most marketing is fear-based, right? The reason that people buy a huge percentage of the things that we buy in life is because of fear. We buy fancy houses instead of more modest ones because we're afraid of looking poor and unsuccessful and just like flat uncool. We buy nicer cars than what we need to get us from point A to point B because we're afraid of being unimpressive. We're afraid of being like off trend. Go get that Acura. Same thing with clothes. Same thing with makeup, certainly, right? We're afraid of looking ugly. And so we want to paint paint our faces as best we can to look more like these magazines. I mean, marketing is all about telling us that we're not good enough without XYZ, whatever it is, fill in the blank. And that's so much. Now, some of that fear is legitimate, right? He talks about Colgate. Toothpaste is a pretty awesome invention. Mm -mm, I'm holding back. (laughs) I'm going to boycott this toothpaste. I can see what these markers are trying to do to me. I don't need that stuff. But you do. It is a great thing. Our teeth last a heck of a lot longer these days than they did in like the 1800s. You're just a shill for Crest. Maybe I am. Maybe I am. Sponsor us if you like. (laughs) No, but in all seriousness, some, some of the things that we buy, one, we do it because we genuinely enjoy it and it makes us happy. And two, because it will, you know, like fully improves our lives or our health in some meaningful way. So it's not to say that like all consumer goods are evil or bad. That's just blatantly not true. But I do think it's important for us to look at all marketing through that lens of, okay, what is it that they're trying to convey to me? What is like the deeper message here? If it's that I'm not good enough without this latest gadget in my pocket, I need to take a step back and recognize I'm pretty good on my own. I don't need that latest gadget to go flash around the office to feel good about myself. Yeah, it's nice if you have an innate self-defense mechanism to block from hardcore marketing. But yeah, you're right. I suppose suppose I'll buy some toothpaste sometime. Yeah, please keep brushing your teeth. That's good for the marriage. Okay. So I think we can go ahead and jump to our next clip. This is a little bit more about the idea that the media is trying to scare us. What we have here is like a lot of news clips clumped together about scary things. Because if you turn on the evening news, America still seems like a pretty scary place. Who is he? Is he dangerous? What's he up to? What are you trying to pull, man? Why are people scared? Remember the first time you heard that someone had hidden a razor blade in an apple at Halloween? Before long, Kids were not permitted to go out in the dark on Halloween and go trick-or-treating at strangers' homes. A lot of people say they won't give out candy treats on Halloween. It's too dangerous, and they're too scared. Well, guess what? There never was any razor blade in the apple. In fact, only two kids in the past 40 years have been killed by Halloween candy, and both of them were poisoned on purpose by relatives. It was like a scene from a horror movie. This Hooksit man was mowing his lawn when a fox darted out of the woods and attacked his riding mower. A warning about a popular weight loss supplement. What you don't know may kill you. You ride them every day, but in an instant, an escalator can mangle you or a loved one. Do you think that escalator thing is about uh, cardiovascular disease? I do not. I think it was about escalators. (laughs) I I prefer a manual stare. Uh Uh-huh. 
uh, I actually do find escalators to be a little bit scary. Yeah, you are a little awkward with them, like in a mall or something. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like that's the one thing in that whole. Did you watch that clip in the past? <laughs> maybe I did. Maybe that's where it came from. Um, are you afraid of mowing the lawn? Might a fox come get you? I mean, that's genuinely terrifying. Uh, first of all, like foxes just aren't that scary. They're about the size of our dog, which is like forty pounds, maybe thirty, maybe even smaller. Yeah, right? they're smaller than that. Yeah, like I mean. I understand they could mess you up if they really wanted to, but they know you're a lot bigger than them. They don't want to. What? I just, it's so ridiculous. It doesn't even, it doesn't even make sense. Anyone who's afraid to eat their Halloween candy, you can bring it to me in, <laughs> in Longmont, Colorado. I'll happily eat it. Uh, yeah. Apples too. Cause we don't just eat candy around here. Boo. Yeah. It's a sad fact. Um, yeah. Okay. So this whole clip is just about this idea that we're getting fear shoved down our throats left and right by the news media. And that is demonstrably true, right? News is scary, almost by definition. You've got sports, you've got weather, maybe a feel-good story here and there. But other than that, they only throw at you things that are going to scare you. And that's because they want you to keep tuning in. They want you to get that feeling of, oh my God, what's coming at me? I have to be informed so I'm ready for it whenever it is. I have to hear the story tomorrow. I need to know what's up. It is funny. In the movie, he talks a little bit about the Canadian news media and how they're a lot less inflammatory. They don't focus so much on the aberrational things and they focus on maybe what's a little bit more important. But I get it. The media is is not free, right? Somebody's got to go pay for it and advertisers need eyes on the show and... The show's got to be compelling. You got to want to watch it. Yeah, it's so true. Things that are scary, just they make headlines, you know, sharks, snakes. I'm very afraid of snakes, something I'm trying to overcome in life. We went for a hike yesterday with some friends, actually with Doug of the Mile High Fi podcast, and we saw a couple of snakes. I was not a fan, but, you know, we got through it and it was okay. I survived, but I mean... There are news stories about snakes all the time because they know that snakes are frightening to poor people like me who can't overcome their fears. I'm working on it, guys. But they know that that stuff is scary, and that's why it makes the headlines because when we're afraid, we come back to that source, and it's like, what else do I need to know to protect myself, right? They get us into that mindset. So I do think, you know, Michael Moore holds this up as one of the potential reasons that we have more guns in America and more allegiance to guns in America because we are pumped full of this fear all the time. And by having more guns, that leads us to more of these kinds of mass shootings and gun violence in general. Yeah. Fear drives a lot and it it influences your perspective. It kind of clouds your ability to think critically about things. And I think what we should do now is maybe go through some numbers to sort of put it all into perspective for people. So I think I mentioned this one already. In 2020, there were a little over 45,000 gun deaths in America. To put that in perspective, that's more than car wreck deaths in America. There were only about 38,600 car deaths in America that year. So you are slightly more likely to die by gun violence than in a car wreck, which should that's not a good fact right no both of them are terrible yeah we should try to find a way for less people to die with guns you said a little over half of those are by suicides correct so yeah fewer gun deaths 
and fewer car wrecks and, and deaths in cars would be fantastic. I'm, if I can, I sign up for that. Is there is there a place to vote for that? Just that topic as an idea. Yeah, that sounds great. That okay. you would think at least that would be popular. It's <laughs> a it's a bipartisan issue. Um, so one of the things that um, gets talked about on both sides, pro gun and anti gun, is using a gun for self defense. Right, the vast majority of people who have a gun say that they own it at least in part for self defense. They want to be able to protect themselves when a bad guy you know, approaches them on the street or more likely when they, a bad guy comes into your house, right? We do have concealed carry licenses in a lot, a lot of states, but most people aren't carrying guns all the time. Most people keep one in the house just in case a bad guy breaks in. So the National Rifle Association put out some numbers that said somewhere between 2.2 and 2.5 million people in America every single year deter a crime or stop a crime or defend themselves from a crime by virtue of the fact that they have a gun, whether they just brandish it or actually fire it at somebody. That's the claim that they make. That sounds like a bogus statistic. That sounds like survey data that has a huge, huge bias to it. Let's think through this. If there are a little over 2 million incidents like this every year, that would mean that one in every 150 Americans experiences this every year. Think back in your life. How many people do you know that have been a victim of some sort of violent crime or in-person mugging or attack or something like that? Hopefully, it's not very many. In my life, I can only think of a handful of people and I've been around for more than a handful of years. And I, despite my lack of popularity, I do know more than 150 people. It, those numbers don't make any sense to me. They really don't jive with my personal experiences. What about you? Definitely does not sound super credible to me. And there have been a lot of people who asked the NRA for you know, more detail. Can we dig into these numbers? And have come up concluding that there's just not any kind of reliable evidence for these these claims of almost two and a half million people a year defending themselves with a gun. Um, other estimates that seem far more credible to me are somewhere between like 67,000 and 100,000 people a year who are using the weapon in some way to deter some kind of crime. Okay, that, that seems way more viable to me. I, I could believe those sorts of numbers, yeah. But that doesn't really align with the rate of criminality that you might think exists based on watching the news. Another thing that people talk about is the lack of training. So a lot of folks just buy a gun and assume that they'll be ready to use it in the event of some kind of attack. But I think it does take a lot of practice and training to get good with the gun. So if you're not practicing on a regular basis, um, probably not a great idea to rely on that weapon to protect you in an emergency situation. Um, which is not to say that, you know, they can't be valid protection devices, but it is something that people should take seriously and, and get trained with. So let's talk about stolen guns. Cause I, you told me some of these numbers and I just thought it was incredibly fascinating. We as a society use guns for self-defense and home defense relatively often, or we, we purchase them for, for this reason. But the guns that we keep in our home 
are accessible to people who break into our homes. And if we're going to have systems to limit who has access to guns through, you know, additional screening processes or licensing or registration, we're still going to have the problem of guns getting stolen from people's homes and getting into the hands of the bad guys. So it's sort of a weird arms race. What are the numbers around guns that get stolen every year? There are about 232,000 guns that are stolen every year, and about 172,000 of those are through the burglaries of somebody's home. So if you're trying to compare the number of times that people defend themselves with a gun versus the number of times that a bad guy is getting a gun in his hands to go do something bad with by taking them out of somebody's home, those numbers don't bear out. We're putting far more guns into the hands of bad guys than people who are actually defending themselves with a gun. How many justifiable homicides are there a year with a gun? So first of all, these numbers are not federally tracked. So to get an across the board estimate for the United States, basically people have to just like pour through news articles and find these numbers on their own. So they're these may not be 100% reliable, and some of them are pretty old because it takes so long to go through all those news articles and get the most current data. But the number that I found was 259 justifiable homicides, somebody who shoots a bad guy who was attacking them with a gun. Okay, so the number of times that you end up discharging your gun and, and fatally wounding an attacker or would-be attacker really pales in comparison. It's orders of magnitudes off the number of times that the guns that we keep to for that very purpose uh, get in the hands of criminals through their their own burglarization activities. It's sort yeah. of it's kind of counterintuitive. We we need this weird arms race where I gotta buy more guns because the criminals have guns, but they're breaking in and stealing guns, then we're doing a good job if even if we're doing a good job of keeping the guns out of their hands through traditional purchasing processes the more guns we have, the more guns they're going to get. Yeah. So it's a ratio of one justifiable homicide for every 896 guns put in the hands of criminals stolen from somebody's house. Wow. So yeah, it's not a great number. All right. So these last couple of statistics that we've gone through really make it sound like guns are are pretty terrible and they're they're very anti-gun statistics. I think we should talk a little bit about some of the numbers that maybe are overblown and maybe the anti-gun people, the anti-gun people need to step back and think about some of the numbers a little bit more seriously around mass shootings. Yeah. So these are, you know, like we're talking about the media, they want to scare us. These are the things that get splashed all over the headlines. And I'm, I do have mixed feelings about this because on the one hand, it would be awful if 19, you know, little, little children and two teachers were killed and nobody knew about it. We just blithely went around acting like these kinds of atrocities don't happen. But also, we do have to keep these in perspective. They are not happening all the time. So mass shootings is generally defined as a shooting in which four or more people are killed. And we have had 277 of those since 2009. 1,565 people died and 1,000 wounded. That's These are numbers since 2009. So if we put that in perspective, that's not an enormous number of people, right? It's certainly far less than the number of car wrecks that we see happening. That's almost 39,000 
people every single year dying in car wrecks, far, far, far less than that are dying from mass shootings every year. So they are atrocious. One is too many, but we also do need to keep it in perspective and not walk around in this state of fear all the time. Okay. So there's maybe 20 or so of these events a year and we're translated to a little over a hundred or so people, 150, whatever the number is per year dying. What about the guns used there? We hear a lot of talk about assault weapons bans. What kind of guns are used in those sorts of attacks? Is it primarily handguns? Is it primarily uh, the, the guns that look really intimidating? Is it somebody walking around with a sawed-off shotgun? So it is mostly handguns that are used in these mass shootings. Um, again, the ones that get splashed on the headlines often involve the infamous AR-15. Um, but a lot of times they're handguns. I think it's only uh, 25% of the time in these mass shootings are we seeing something that's more along the lines of a rifle, what we often people call assault rifles. Although I have learned that is not what AR for AR-15 stands for. It stands for Armalite, which I guess is a brand. But um, yes, these assault rifle style weapons that we think of are only used in a quarter of the mass shootings. Yeah. So it seems like we're looking at the wrong things, right? If in society we're very focused about taking assault rifles out of the hands of would-be criminals, we may save, I don't know, 500 lives, 800 lives over a decade. But, well, in mass shooting events in particular, I suppose. But we're losing 20,000 plus people a year to suicides by guns. I mean, I, I don't know that we're talking about the right stuff. Yeah. It's definitely, I mean, you know, obviously none of these people who were, including little children who were killed in Uvalde, none of the people who were killed in the mass shooting in Las Vegas, none of those people wanted to die, right? You, at least for a moment, the people who were ending their own lives wanted to die. So it's hard to, I don't know. It's difficult it's to reconcile. The, it's not the same thing, but that doesn't make the suicides any less tragic. I mean, we, our own lives have been touched right, with our own families have been touched by suicide by guns. And it is just gut-wrenching to think about the fact that, you know, those people that we loved and we had in our lives, they're gone and they may have only had a moment of um, you know, moment of grief, a moment of weakness, moment of panic, whatever it might have been. So it is, it is an absolutely terrible thing that we have so many deaths by suicide in America. And most of them are by gun. Most suicides in America have happened by gun. Okay. I think our last sort of set of statistics deals with comparisons between the U.S. and some other countries. I think we're mostly focusing on European countries who are fairly similar to us. What are some of the numbers about homicides, gun homicides? What's it look like? So if we look at gun deaths in America, in the U.S., we have about 10.6 deaths per 100,000 people that are by gun violence, which is dramatically more than we see in other developed countries. So we did look primarily at Europe because they you know, are culturally pretty similar to us in a lot of ways. And in general, you're looking at somewhere around one in 100,000 deaths by guns in Europe. Now, I did say we are a lot safer than a lot of other places, and we should 
feel grateful for that and acknowledge it. If you look at a lot of the Central American countries, they are having really difficult times with gun violence. You're like up in the range of 40 deaths by gun violence per 100,000 people when you're talking about countries like El Salvador, Venezuela. So we do have a lot to be grateful for. There's a lot of room for improvement, but we should still be grateful that things aren't a lot worse. I think a lot of people often wonder, well, if we got rid of all the guns in the United States, surely other forms of violence would take over, right? There's got to be more stabbings that happen in Australia or the United Kingdom where they've gotten rid of their their guns. What about just the homicide rates in general? So in the United States, you're looking at about 5.9 deaths per 100,000 people that happen by homicide versus, again, like around one per 100,000 for most European countries. Okay, so yeah, that's right. Over half of our gun deaths are by suicide, so those won't count as homicides, but we're like five times as murderous as most of the rest of the Western world. Yeah, which obviously does demonstrate a correlation that more guns leads to more deaths. So I think it's close to 1.5 guns for every person in America today. Um, that might be a little bit high. It might be 1.3-ish or 1.2-ish. But we definitely have more guns than people in America by a pretty substantial number. Um, whereas in most other countries, you're looking at far less than one gun per person. So all these correlations that we've drawn between you know, us having significantly more gun deaths and more homicides, um, I think the missing piece there was just how many more guns we actually do have here. Yeah, there's a lot. It's correlation, you know, we can't definitively call it causation, but it seems like a, a pretty important fact to take note of. I think it's important to note that are we really more murderous as a people? Uh, poor Charlton Heston. I think he was uh, experiencing early signs of Alzheimer's in the movie, and he looked like a terrible person in the interview of Bowling for Columbine. He just looked like a bigoted, racist I don't know what. And apparently he like marched with Martin Luther King back in the day. So I don't know what happened to turn him into that as he got older. But, you know, he, he made the point that we're just a violent country and that that's who we are, which I thought was a bit silly. I don't I don't think that's really accurate. Surely if if all of the guns in the United States disappeared tomorrow, I can't imagine that we would have five X the murder rate of European countries. We might we might still be higher, but nowhere near five X. Yeah, it's definitely hard to imagine that as many people would would murder if they were forced to use like a close range weapon, like a knife or a baseball bat or something. But you know, the the pro gun cohort would say guns don't kill people; people kill people. If you want to kill someone, you're going to find a way. The numbers don't necessarily back that up, but we're only looking at some of the numbers here today, so. Um, if you have your own statistics that back up another thing, leave us a comment and let us know. We're always open to learning. Yeah, we definitely are. Um, so a lot of numbers. That was some deep content there. Let's go to something a little bit more lighthearted. In the movie, uh, Michael Moore includes a clip from a Chris Rock special. I think this is the same special that Michael Scott in The Office got in trouble for repeating part of. So <laughs> but it's, a, it's a different section of that, that same HBO special. Yeah, let's listen to Chris Rock. You don't need no gun control. You know what you need? We need some bullet control. We need to make, we need to control the bullets. That's right. I think all bullets should cost $5,000. $5,000 a 
for a bullet. You know why? Because if a bullet costs five thousand dollars, there'll be no more innocent bystanders. Yeah. Every time somebody gets shot, you be like, "Damn, he must have did something." Should they put fifty thousand dollars on the bullets in his hand? And people would think before they kill somebody if a bullet cost $5,000. Man, I would blow your fucking head off if I could afford it. I'm gonna get me another job. I'm gonna start saving some money. And you a dead man. You better hope I can't get no bullets on layaway. <laughs> oh, he's great. Yeah, where's Will Smith? I'm, I feel like they're forever linked now after the Oscar slap. It's funny. A lot of comedians tackle gun control in their shows. They do lots of sets on that kind of topic. I, I think if you step back and look at it, especially from an outsider's perspective, if you're going to just wipe the slate clean and start over with the weapons we have today, I think most people would probably decide there's a way to do it a little bit differently. The cat's already out of the bag. We are where we are. And it's really hard to change any of the rules or to ensure that we're starting over at a point of equality on, on weapons and that sort of thing. But it's definitely pretty common comedy fodder. Yeah. He certainly does a good job with it. So I think we can talk about a couple of things here. One, do you think he's right? Do you think if bullets were crazy expensive, it would cut down on these gun statistics that we've been talking about? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it would make it to where bullets are basically inaccessible to a large portion of the population. Who knows, maybe it would lead to more violent crime. Maybe people are going to do more break-ins and robberies trying to get enough money to buy a bullet. I don't know. That's true. There's always unintended consequences that you have to try to predict as best you can. Um, so maybe there would be those kinds of fallout things from it, but... On its face, it does sound like not a terrible idea, at least to make them maybe not $5,000, but a lot more expensive than they are. And this is certainly something that there's precedent for, right? The government taxes all kinds of things that we've deemed to be just not great for public health. Things like cigarettes and alcohol and all kinds of tobacco products, vaping. Um, you pay a pretty hefty price tag if you want to still engage in those activities. And maybe guns are, are the same way. I actually was listening to a podcast recently where they talked about this as a serious solution and talked about having an exception for gun ranges, that gun ranges can buy like all the bullets they want for super cheap. People can go there, practice, have fun. A lot of the reason people like guns is they think they're fun. So you can go get that energy out, enjoy it. And then in the real world, if you want to use a gun, you're going to pay a real premium for that. I, I'm glad that was the suggestion because I was going to say it seems terrible to make sports shooting uh, recreation for the uber wealthy and not accessible to the common person. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose maybe you'd have to do something with hunting, maybe come up with some kind of, you know, bullets that are primarily used for hunting would be an exception as well. If you can come up with a bullet that can kill a wild animal, but not a wild person, <laughs> you're going to be wealthy, Carla. Good luck with that. Yeah, I get that it's hard, but... In any event, you know, as hard as it may be, it would be great if intelligent people sat down and put their minds to these kinds of problems, because right now there just doesn't seem to be any political will to make any changes. That's true. What I thought was interesting in the movie, and where this kind of ties back, is they did a little bit of bullet control, right? In the movie, Michael Moore took a couple of the survivors from the Columbine massacre, and they went to Kmart's headquarters. The bullets that were used in the shooting, I think, 
some of them were sold at Kmart or bought at Kmart. I don't really know what the deal was, but they went there and they just sort of barged their way in, met with some marketing person, tried to get higher up and meet with the CEO. They couldn't get a meeting. The next day they came back with a bunch of media and were ready to just go hard on Kmart for selling these dangerous bullets in their stores. And what do you know, Kmart decided to pull them from their shelves while they were there. It really surprised Michael Moore and the two Columbine students who, who, who were shot. I say they were survivors of the massacre. They were, they were direct victims. One of them was paralyzed, but they were really surprised at that change, which I thought was really fascinating. Yeah. I think it's just another example of, you know, if you make some noise and try to get things changed, it can work. I mean, we shouldn't be afraid to raise our voices and yeah. See what we think. I remember in some of the more recent mass shooting events in the aftermath, I think Walmart and Dick's Sporting Goods, they both instituted changes in the guns that they would carry. I think they dramatically reduced the number of stores that sell handguns or that sell handgun ammunition. They took away anything more than like hunting style weapons for the most part. I think it was what was right for them and their brand. It didn't necessarily translate into a crazy backlash. I mean, Kmart. I suppose they didn't really do so hot. <laughs> I don't know that Kmart in 19, between 1999 and 2002 when this movie was made, I don't think they were doing that great in the first place, but Walmart and Dick's Sporting Goods seem to still be thriving despite their, their gun choices. I'm sure they alienated a few buyers. At the same time, they did this a handful of years ago and gun violence in the United States hasn't exactly gone down in the last couple of years. So I don't know if it's a difference-making thing or if it's just somebody trying to do what they think is the right approach, whether it's going to matter or not. Yeah. Well, I did see a statistic that the vast majority of Americans are within 10 miles of a licensed arms dealer at any given time. So Walmart, you know, choosing not to sell the vast majority of guns, selling only hunting rifles is uh, not exactly made them inaccessible to most people. There's still a lot of arms dealers out there. So the last thing I think we should talk about is the economic impact of gun violence on the American economy, because this stuff is really expensive. And obviously, the money is way, way secondary to the loss of lives and people losing their, you know, beloved children in the case of Evaldi and family members in the case of all these other terrible shootings. The economic impact is real, and I think it's something that a lot of people don't think about. So the numbers that I found that try to estimate the cost of gun violence are every year we're spending about $3.5 billion on the healthcare costs to treat gun violence victims, $10.7 billion on police and criminal justice costs to try to combat gun violence, investigate gun violence. Um half a billion dollars on employer costs and lost productivity from workers who were victims of gun violence, Um, $51.2 billion of lost income to the people who are either killed or are severely disabled from gun violence. And then finally, they throw this last piece in there, which I think is kind of dubious. It's $214 billion in quality of life lost for the victims and their family members. I mean, pain and suffering is a quantifiable thing that juries have to deal with all the time, right? They try to put some sort of dollar amount on pain and suffering. So that's what they're doing here is trying to use jury awards as kind of a proxy for how much 
dollar value do we put on this? But that's obviously not a direct cost to the economy. No one's actually paying $214 billion to make up for pain and suffering, at least not in most cases, probably. So that's still, though, roughly all the things that I rattled off. You're looking at um, over $60 billion in costs to America every single year as a result of gun violence. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I, so I have the opportunity to do a lot of work with school districts at my job. And I kind of think about what my school was like when I was a high school student and then what I see in school districts around the country and the amount of money that's been invested in security, trying to go ensure that the buildings are less, uh, you know, more of an impenetrable for- fortress, making it the amount of money invested to try to make sure that no one can break into those buildings during the school day and that students are kept safe behind locked doors is kind of astounding. It's just been a radical change to the philosophy on some of the campuses. And there are just so many small things that exist in our society that we don't think about that do that, that are really a function of the, the nature of the violence that we're trying to avoid happening anywhere. Well, Folks, I think we've made it through this awkward, difficult, controversial topic of an episode. Um, I guess my advice to everyone to wrap it up for me is if you're a gun owner, be a responsible gun owner. Make sure that anyone who's in a desperate situation or young children doesn't have access to that gun. There are wonderful fingerprint firearm safes that exist today that allow you rapid access to your gun so you can still use it for protection in your home but also make it to where the vulnerable don't have access to it. Uh, That'd be my plea for everyone. And then also let's try to find a way to have reasonable discourse about our problems, right? We can, we can make our country and our communities better. If we just slow down, stop, do a little research, think critically about things and communicate with one another with a little bit of empathy. It's not too bad. Yeah. And if you think any of the statistics that we've thrown out today are biased or just not good numbers, please reach out and let us know. We're um, more than happy to to talk about this kind of stuff and engage in it. Um, I think it's just so important that we have more of those kinds of conversations in this country. So let us know what you think. And I think, you know, we talked a lot about suicide in this episode. I just hope everybody out there, please take care of yourself and find somebody to talk to, whether it's a friend or a counselor, if you're struggling with anything anything at all. So we uh, are sending good vibes out to everybody. We hope everybody takes care of themselves. And thanks for sticking through this episode with us. Yeah. And stay strong in that fight against big toothpaste. (laughs) All right, guys. Thanks so much. We'll catch you next time. Take care.